because it's a bit louder now that this past week we had a, a great creation care camp. Uh, we had about 40 children attend. Of course, you know, there's always some children that aren't there every day, but about 40 children attend. We learned about God through his creation, what we can know about him through his world, but then we also spent some time talking about what we can know about God through his word. And we talked about uh, how and the reason why God created us. We talked about the disastrous consequences of what have, what's gone wrong, and we, but we talked too about what God's done to restore us, to fix it, in Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I was telling somebody outside the church about this week, and he asked me a question. He said, that's great. He said, do, do you think that any of the kids responded to the gospel? And I said to him, all of the kids responded to the gospel. When we encounter Jesus through his word, we all respond to him. The question is, how do you respond? I want to read to you today, we're in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 18, we're coming near to the end of it, and I want to read to you a longer passage today that touches on that question, how do we respond to Jesus? It's John uh, chapter 18, verses 28 through chapter 19 and verse 16, this is God's word. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the, play, to the palace of the Roman governor. And now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happens so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. Well, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. 
The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, he was wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was a day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they answered, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Father, in this account that we've read today, sober us. We will, each one of us, respond to Jesus today. Help us to respond in a way that tends to our good and to your glory. Amen. Everyone who encounters Jesus responds to him. And John's account here, after he gathered with his disciples, shows three different ways that people responded to Jesus. I didn't read it this morning, but last week we looked at Peter's response. And Peter's response, you remember, was a, was a perplexed response. See, Peter thought that he understood what Jesus was doing. He thought that he understood what Jesus was up to. He thought he understood what all this talk about the kingdom of God was. 
And, and Peter wanted to be a part of that. He'd waited for the Messiah. And so at the time that seemed right, at the time that seemed opportune, his sword came out. He was ready to fight. He was ready to die if necessary. And then Jesus scolded him and told him to put the sword away. You know, you look at the four Gospels that record that event, the impact of what Jesus says to him, is effectively to say, Peter, Peter, you, you don't get it at all. You don't get what I've been telling you at all. You don't get what the kingdom is about at all. Peter, put your sword away. And Peter obeys Jesus. He does what Jesus tells him. But his trust in Jesus falters and wavers. And out of confusion and fear, he'll deny that he even knows Jesus. Now, it's significant to note that that confusion doesn't cause him to disobey Jesus' command. Jesus doesn't disregard what Peter said about the sword. He doesn't launch forward anyway. He doesn't argue. In his confusion, he still obeys, but it causes his confidence to waver. And you know, that's the confusion and the fear that comes from trusting that Jesus is going to do a certain thing. Some people trust in Jesus that way. I trust he's going to do a certain thing. Rather than simply trusting in Jesus. So there's the response of Peter, that perplexed response. Then there's the response of the Jews. Now, I want to point out, I think I have already in John's gospel, that that phrase, the Jews, in John's gospel is not... An ethic, an ethnic reference. It's not Jews as opposed to the Romans or Jews as opposed to the Greek. Um, Jesus is a Jew, a son of Abraham. John is a Jew. Peter's a Jew. Bartholomew's a Jew. Andrew's a Jew. Nathaniel's a Jew. Thaddeus is a Jew. They're all Jews. But when John uses that phrase, the Jews, he's referring to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the guardians of the institution of Judaism as it had come to be practiced at that time. And these people bring Jesus to Pilate and they, and they so want to get rid of him. It's almost incredible that when they bring him to Pilate and they say, what charges are you bringing against this man their answer is, if he were not a criminal, we, we wouldn't have arrested him. We wouldn't have handed him over to you. Can you imagine that as a charge? You, you're arrested by the police. You're brought to the magistrate. And the magistrate says, okay, what's the charge? And the police officer says, if he weren't a criminal, I wouldn't have brought him here. You know, Rome could be brutal, but it was known for its system of law, for its system of justice. What kind, of, what kind of rage must have driven them that they thought that that would be uh, an acceptable way to proceed? And, and, and as the events unfold, as, as, as Pilate seeks to release this man, because he can't see any reason 
that, that this man should even be before him. That they indicate that they'd rather have released to them someone who took part in an insurrection than have Jesus. This group, the Jews, the leaders in Judea, they're politicos through and through who know Pilate. They know the Roman political situation. And they know how to manipulate Pilate to get the outcome that they want. And the most telling statement to see how they respond to Jesus is the one found in chapter 19, verses 14 and 15. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the six hours. Here's your king. Pilate said to the Jews, in other words, he's he's trying to say, look, I've humiliated him. I brought him out dressed in this robe. Can you see that this man is pathetic, that he's no threat to anyone? I'm going to release him and let him go, but they wouldn't have it. And Pilate brings him out. He says, here's your king. Pilate said to the Jews, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asks. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. These were the people who were supposed to know God. They claimed to know God. People thought they knew God. But here now, here's the man who is God, who stands before them. And they call for him to be crucified. You know, in my Sunday school class, uh, one of the people in my Sunday school class said to me, and I appreciate the honesty, he said, you know, he said, I'm so much of a traditionalist that I wonder if I had been there in Jerusalem, if, if I would have recognized who Jesus was. It's a good question. We who claim to know God, would we recognize him if we saw him? These are the people who were supposed to know God. They claimed to know God. People thought they knew God. Here now the man who is God stands before them and they say, crucify him. Sometimes the priests speak the truth in spite of themselves. And we saw that happening all the way back in chapter 11 when they're trying to figure out to do, what to do with Jesus because they're afraid that he'll upset the whole apple cart. And we uh, read in chapter 11 that the chief priests, the Pharisees, called the meeting of the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the ruling court in Jerusalem. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It doesn't matter who he says he is or claims to be. We don't want the apple cart upset. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better 
for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? John says he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Sometimes the priests speak truth in spite of themselves. And the priests do so here too. It slips out of their lips in a moment of anger. We have no king but Caesar. They'd long ago given up anything like real faith in God. They were just going through the religious motions. They had everyone fooled. Maybe, maybe they were fooling themselves. But their hope was set on earthly things. On social and political maneuverings to keep things stable so that it was comfortable for them in what they had established in Jerusalem. And their religion now was just a convenient cover for their manipulation. In pretending to be godly, their response to Jesus, the man who is God, was just outright rejection. And then there's Pilate's response. Do you know that we know quite a bit about Pontius Pilate from... Uh, the historical writings. Tacitus writes a little bit about him. Philo and Josephus write quite a bit about him. We, we can surmise that uh, Pilate's political star must have risen rapidly because he's not mentioned anywhere before we uh, find out that he's governor of Judea, comes on the scene as governor of Judea. That, that's not usually the case. Usually, when we have people who hold important positions, there's some kind of historical trail as to how they got there, but, but there's no mention of Pilate before he's governor of Judea. And he must have been a pretty effective governor because he held that post for 10 years from A.D. 27 to A.D. 37, longer than anybody else, longer than any other Roman governor held that post. There were several instances between the Jewish leaders, and Pilate that almost erupted into violence. And it's it's difficult to find a a similarity of the situation, but it might be something like um, the Jews and the Palestinians today and that uneasy truce of what it was like with the Romans living there in Jerusalem among the Jews. It was a powder keg. And it was very difficult to keep the peace. And there had been numerous instances that had almost erupted in violence because Pilate did something that he didn't uh, realize early on would offend the sensibilities of the Jews. And the emperor Tiberius had let Pilate know that he was not happy whenever that happened. Tiberius, some of you history buffs know, was Rome's second emperor. And Tiberius was a, an odd kind of man, but a capable one. As his reign progressed, Tiberius came to left the details 
of running his empire more and more to a man by the name of Lucius Seginus. Seginus was the prefect of the Praetorian Guard, and he became the trusted confidant of Tiberius. More and more, uh, Tiberius just oversaw the big uh, picture, but left the details to Seginus and pursued other things. And then in AD 31, a plot was uncovered in which it was discovered that Seginus had been planning to assassinate Tiberius and proclaim himself emperor. While Seginus and his entire family were brutally executed, as was anyone who was even suspected of being a close friend of Seginus or anybody who had supported him in any way. It was a bloodbath in Rome. After that, Tiberius became surly, became paranoid, and became suspicious. He saw any incompetence anywhere in office, any place in the Roman Empire as a deliberate attempt to undermine his power. And from AD 31 onward, numerous lesser Roman magistrates lost not only their positions, but lost their lives for some administrative misstep. In AD 37, Pontius Pilate came close to being among them. The year before, he'd put down a violent insurrection to the north of the Samaritans. But there was a lot of bloodshed. And rather than praise him, Tiberius was furious that he had let him come, that he had let it come to that, that he hadn't foreseen it and somehow cut it off at the pass. And Tiberius summoned Pilate to Rome to stand personally before him in an incredible mercy. While Pilate was on his way to Rome, Tiberius died in office. And it was often the case that when there were things like that that were to happen, the next emperor, who was Caligula, had really no interest in Pilate, and it seems that he dismissed the case. And that's where all that we know about Pilate ends. He never held any office in Rome again. You need to understand that background to know that the Jewish leaders came accusing Jesus before Pilate of violating the lex uh, maestatus, the law of rebellion. It was a law that was greatly expanded under Tiberius. And Roman citizens guilty of it would be executed by beheading. Those who were not citizens would be executed by crucifixion. Even citizens who were executed, if their, if their families were not executed, along with them, their property and all their holdings would be seized as payment to the state. Their families would be left destitute. The Seginus plot, less than two years earlier, before Jesus stands before, before Pilate, had put Tiberius in a perpetually foul mood. 
And Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You know, we we read those words, they probably don't do much to us. I want to tell you that I'm quite certain they struck terror in the heart of Pontius Pilate. He knew Jesus was innocent, but what could he do? The Judean leaders would spin a conspiracy theory and Tiberius would believe it. And you can imagine the letter. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to the most excellent Tiberius greetings. We thought we should bring to your attention the actions of your governor here in Judea. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. And the talk of him we saw being the son of God had unnerved him. But what could he do? So Pilate responded to Jesus against his convictions. Against what he knew to be true because it was expedient and because it was the only safe course he could take. Some of these people responded to Jesus better than others. None of them responded particularly well. But none of these responses have to be the end of the story. Peter can be restored. So Jesus told Peter that his denial was coming, but Jesus also said, but Peter, I've prayed for you. And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. And we'll see, God willing, when we get to the very end of this gospel, that Peter can hardly believe that Jesus would want anything to do with him anymore. But Jesus welcomes him, assures him, restores him, and commissions him. He says, Peter, you feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter's confused denials cannot separate him from Jesus' love if Peter will simply return, if he'll come back. Peter can be restored. Caesar worshipers can repent. You know, we find a statement in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. It's It's an astounding statement that shouldn't be missed. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, we read, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You know, Matthew and Mark both record the words of the Roman centurion who oversaw the execution of Jesus, who by definition would be a man who had no king but Caesar. He oversaw the death of Jesus. He stood before him. He watched how he died and he said, surely this man was the son of God. Caesar worshipers can be welcomed by Jesus if they'll repent and come to him. And even Pilate can be forgiven. 
we assume Pilate to be the archfiend of history, irredeemable. And maybe he is. As I said, all traces of him disappear from history after AD 37. We don't know what became of him. Tradition about Pilate is split. Writing in the late 4th century, Eusebius relates a tradition that after returning to Rome, Pilate committed suicide. It's possible. There's no corroboration for it. Tertullian, in the early 3rd century, on the other hand, relates an account of Pilate becoming a follower of Jesus. And in fact, in the Syrian church and other eastern branches of the church to this day, Pontius Pilate is venerated as a saint. Not for his cowardly condemnation of Jesus, but because of the tradition that upon hearing the gospel of Jesus' resurrection, he repented of his sin and became a lifelong follower of Jesus. Now, as I said, this is tradition and the history stops, but there's no historical reason why that couldn't be. And there's nothing in the heart of Jesus that would make that story impossible for Jesus died to forgive sinners. Those who reject Jesus against their knowledge and against their conviction can also be forgiven if they'll come to him. So which of those kids at Nature Care Camp responded to Jesus? Every single one of them. They all did. Everyone responds to Jesus. You respond to Jesus. The question is, how are you responding to Jesus today? Some responses to Jesus are better than others. None of us responds to Jesus the way we should. Why? If we could do that, Jesus wouldn't need to have died for our sins. He could have come, spoken words. We could have straightened ourselves out and gone on with it. We could have had mere teaching and that could have fixed us. But it wasn't enough. So how are you responding to Jesus? Maybe you are like Pilate. Living in disobedience to what Jesus says. Because you just can't see any alternative. You want to do what's right, but you fear that the consequences in the world will just be too great and you can't do it. Maybe you're like the religious leaders, feigning love for God. They said that they loved God, but when brought face to face with the man who is God, well, the truth came out, we have no king but Caesar. You know, I think that those words pretty well capture much of the American evangelical church today. We have no king but Caesar. Maybe you've put your trust and your hope in political figures. So much so that you won't even call their sin, sin. Making excuses for evil as long as the one doing the evil will save you culturally or politically. I see so many professed Christians today not merely making the best of the bad situation that we've been given in, in the unbelievable wickedness that we see around us uh, in our culture, in our political schemas, in our political people, 
but defending sin as long as it's committed by their Caesar. Or maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you obey, but you're confused. But then you draw back, you deny that you know him in some way because you were trusting Jesus for something, to do something for you that he never promised he would do. You put words in his mouth. You comforted yourself that following Jesus would mean this would happen or that would happen, and now you're confused. Some responses are better than others. None of our responses are perfect. So what's yours? Maybe like Pilate, you're denying Jesus because the cost of following him seems too great. Maybe you're like the Jews who had the appearance and reputation of being godly, but long ago gave up any real hope in God. And now you've set your mind on earthly things and you look for your salvation here. Or maybe you're like Peter, you've obeyed, but you're confused. Things haven't gone the way they were supposed to, and you're wavering, you're faltering. Let me say it again. If we could respond to Jesus perfectly, it would mean that sin was just something that lay on the surface. It could be fixed with words. It could be fixed with teaching. That's all we would need to do, just clean up our act. If that were the case, Jesus died needlessly. But if sin is deeper than that, words alone won't fix us. And that's why Jesus died. In his death and his resurrection is power for repentance. In his death and in his resurrection is power for the forgiveness of your sin. And his death and resurrection is power to overcome our weakness, our failing, our imperfect responses. So how are you responding to Jesus? However you've responded, come to him now. Confess your sin. Name your faithlessness. Come to him. He will receive you. How will you respond to him? Father, everything is open and laid bare before the eyes of you with whom we have to do. So, Father, let us not flatter ourselves nor deceive ourselves. Father, help us through Jesus to come to you. Weak, wounded, weary, faltering, failing, sinning. To trust in Jesus. Father, by his death and resurrection and the spirit that he has sent, fill us. Challenge us. Change us. 
not something that needs to be done once. Something that we need throughout our lives. Give us grace, courage to do it. That your great name may be glorified and we may see the good for which Jesus died. Amen. Thank you.